God revealed the future world empires to the ancient prophet Daniel. And he said in Daniel 12, verse 4, that God revealed to Daniel, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. And what we're seeing today is absolutely amazing. Scientific and technological knowledge has increased exponentially. Scientists can even now intervene at the DNA level, manipulating the very formulas of human and animal characteristics. And how fast are computers? Fortune magazine, June 9th, uh, 2018, stated this, The United States has retaken first place in a major metric of technological heft. The world's fastest supercomputer is once again American. The Oak Ridge National Laboratory, a branch of the U.S. Department of Energy, unveiled the new, unveiled the new computer called Summit on Friday. The system, according to the department's announcements, is rated to perform 200,000 trillion calculations per second. That's hard to imagine. Well, what calculations would you calculate? 200,000 trillion per second or 200 petaflops. And it gives a substantial edge over China, which only had 93 petaflops. So we are seeing knowledge increase at an exponential rate. Some have called our modern approach to life the new Gnosticism. We'll turn to 1 Timothy, the sixth chapter. 1 Timothy 6. As you know, the word gnosis means knowledge. And the first century church had to counter that uh, false religion called Gnosticism, a claim to secret and special knowledge for salvation. First Timothy, the sixth chapter, the Greek word gnosis, means knowledge. And the Apostle Paul told Timothy here, First Timothy, get it? First Timothy 6 and verse 20. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith, Grace be with you. Amen. So this Gnosticism claims to knowledge and falsely called knowledge was a challenge to the first century church. And today we still have modern Gnostics. We have those who claim secret knowledge of salvation or special spiritual knowledge. The King James Version has oppositions of science falsely uh, so-called. <clears throat> Again, that's the Greek word gnosis, uh, translated science or knowledge. The Expositor's Bible Commentary states this concerning this particular verse. We have already seen that several times in the epistle, <clears throat> Paul is combating the false teachings of Gnosticism. 
those who profess a superior gnosis and believe that salvation comes to those who have this secret intellectual treasure. But as noted above, Paul may be here warning against the teachings of both Gnostics and Judaizers. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> the New Unger's Bible Dictionary says this about Gnosticism. Gnosticism in its diverse forms received its impulse and in the main its guidance from pagan philosophy. In different ways it's denied the humanity of Christ even to the extent of denying the reality of his human body. And so you find in 1 John where John says, we have handled him. The word of life, in other words, John is testifying that Jesus really came in the flesh, where the Gnostics were saying, no, uh, he was just a spirit. So our ter- challenge today is, as always, when we have false religions and false, and, uh, false uh, doctrines, all kinds of heresies, is to test all things, hold fast, which is good. Of course, First uh, Thessalonians 5.21 we know that Satan has deceived the whole world. And God has called us out of darkness to the light of truth. False religious teachers and false doctrines include the rapture and the trinity. And atheists, agnostics, secular humanists, and materialists, and others promote anti-God and anti-Bible propaganda. We're thankful for the founding fathers of the United States and other countries. One of my favorite quotes is from George Washington, the first president of the United States, who gave a Thanksgiving proclamation to the nation October 3rd, 1789. He stated, quote, Whereas it is a duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and to humbly implore his protection and favor. Would that the United States and all nations would have that attitude today, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and to acknowledge the providence of God. God does rule supreme, as we saw on the telecast just uh, last week by Mr. Wallace Smith. God reigns supreme. He is the great sovereign ruler of the universe. But the knowledge that the world has today and our United States has today is pretty pathetic. And Hosea states it in this way. You turn back to Hosea, you know that scripture. Hosea, the fourth chapter. Hosea 4 and verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Eternal, you children of Israel. For the Eternal brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying, killing and stealing, committing adultery, they break out all restraints. Verse 6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. 
I will also reject you from being priests for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. (coughs) So our people have rejected God's knowledge and are going to pay the consequences of that rejection. All nations on earth should know the true God. My turn to... First John, the second chapter, First John 2. But most nations are following false gods or false Christ. They'll have to face the reality of the true God when his kingdom comes on earth. We thank God during the millennium that all nations will know who God is. It mentions that in Isaiah 11. Verse 9, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The earth is not full of the knowledge of the Lord now, but it will be as the waters cover the sea. You think the ocean beds are full of water and that knowledge of the eternal will be expanded all over the earth. But today, people are rejecting God and even fighting against God, in a sense. First John 2, the second chapter, yet we have Christians or professing Christians that claim to know God. First John 2, verse 4. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So how many liars are there that are professing Christians? They may not know that they're liars, but this is what God's Word says. God has called us to know Him personally. Dr. Roderick Meredith wrote in the uh, editorial in the Living Church News, May, June 2010, How deeply do you know God? Quote, always remember the combined testimonies of nature, of the Bible, and of answered prayer all reveal the same true God. He is the all-wise, all-powerful, law-giving ruler of the universe. And this awesome supreme being wants to have a close personal relationship with you. So get to know God better by talking to him often and always being, always doing what he says. Then as you acknowledge his government and obey his law, truly living his way, not merely playing church, you will truly be preparing to enter into eternal life at Christ's return as his spirit-born child of God. Dr. Meredith also gave a sermon, How to Really Know God, and you get that, of course, on our a website, lcg.org or cogl.org. So my question for you today is, how well do you know God? How close are you to Him? <clears throat> do you have the knowledge of God? How do you know that you know God? Do you have His spiritual understanding and truth? Most of you do, or you wouldn't be here. Can you identify the false doctrines concerning the nature of God. 
And what is the greatest knowledge of all? The title of the sermon today is The Knowledge of God and Introduction. The Knowledge of God and Introduction. The knowledge of God is powerful and it's intimate, so, and in infinite as well. So the sermon can only be an introduction to the knowledge of God, but God has revealed His truth to us, and He expects us to grow and increase in that knowledge. God wants us to know Him intimately. Turn to Colossians, the first chapter. Colossians. How close are you to God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? What kind of godly knowledge must we learn and must we know? Colossians, the first chapter. Starting with verse 9. For this reason we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. So you may want to, during this sermon, if you come across your scriptures, you're reading the the expression, the knowledge of God. Increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might, according to His glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. So, brethren, God wants us to increase in the knowledge, in His knowledge. We have sermons along that line. He says to do His will and to do those things that are pleasing in His sight. We have the sermon, Are You Pleasing God? The sermon, Your Will Be Done. We need the knowledge of God's will, of course, which is from beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. But what is the knowledge of God? It's the knowledge of who and what God is. And that's a big subject. In fact, uh, Mr. Peter Nathan gave a five-part series on that very subject here in Charlotte. So today we'll discuss five major elements of God's knowledge. So it's an introduction. Do you have that knowledge? Let's turn to Romans, the first chapter, and uh, verse 20. Romans 1 and verse 20. Satan has deceived the whole world, and so we have to face the challenges of modern heresies and the false claims to knowledge. We already saw how the Apostle Paul had to confront the Gnostics and help the brethren and even particularly Timothy and those in that area to understand the heresies they were facing. The Gnostics claimed to have knowledge of God, but they were in fact deceived. The Anchor Bible Dictionary, under the heading History of Gnosticism, said early theologians held the view, and this is interesting, I didn't know this before, that the Gnostic movement was introduced by Simon Magus, the sorcerer 
of Acts, the eighth chapter. <clears throat> Quote, most of the heresiologists considered Simon as the first Gnostic, thank you, as the first Gnostic, the founder of the sect or heresy. His disciple Menander then distributed the Gnostic teaching to Saturninus of Antioch and Basilides of Alexandria. With the help of this lineage, the beginning and expansion of Gnosticism was explained for centuries in the Orthodox ecclesiastical tradition. But now we face modern Gnosticism, which sees the material world and even the human body in need of reformation by modern science. They don't like what God has created. We need to interfere with that creation. The world of materialism is their only reality. Today's world denies God's existence and the true knowledge of God. And so we're descending into the darkness of immorality. And that's why we produced the DVD, Culture in Crisis. It featured Mr. Wallace uh, Smith's telecast, Descending into Chaos, Mr. Weston's telecast, The Dangers of Social Media. So today we are living in a time just as in the first century. The Apostle Paul wrote here in Romans 1 and verse 20. You're very familiar with this verse. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. So we have many intellectuals around the world that claim to be brilliant, intelligent, yet God calls them fools. Why? Because they reject the very knowledge of God. Everyone on earth ought to know God. Let's turn to Acts 17. Well, God is not calling them all now, so why should they know him? Well, we just read in Romans 1 and verse 20 that they should know him just by the creation. The Apostle Paul made this pronouncement when we talked to the Athenians in Acts the 17th chapter. He was proclaiming to them the unknown God. He said in verse 27, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. <clears throat> He's saying you should seek the Lord. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are his offspring, the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art or man's devising. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands some people to repent. No, God commands all men everywhere to repent. That includes some of you who may not have repented yet. So God is making that witness now. We know in 
Acts, the first chapter, we have the responsibilities to go to the end of the earth as witnesses of the truth of God and to preach the true gospel and to preach his true knowledge. So the first century church met the challenge of the Gnostic heresy. Gnostics claimed secret and superior knowledge, emphasizing that material substance was evil, and therefore Jesus was not really flesh and blood. But to whom has God given the understanding of true knowledge? Turn to Matthew, the 11th chapter, Matthew 11, and we're facing modern Gnosticism and other various forms of deceptions. Matthew 11. Matthew 11 and verse 25. Now, this is such a beautiful verse, and I think I've mentioned to you before when our former association was starting the uh, heresy of uh, the false concept of the new covenant and uh, the lecturer was saying, well, this is, this is very challenging. You have to really think deeply. It's, uh, you didn't use the word esoteric knowledge, but basically that's what it's saying. And uh, Gerald Waterhouse you know, was sitting in the front of the auditorium, and, and he, he mentioned this verse out loud. He said, well, even God reveals them to the babes. You don't have to be an intellectual giant to understand the knowledge of God and the truth of God. Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 25, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. You and I have received revealed knowledge. We know the two trees, the knowledge of the good and evil and the knowledge of the tree of life. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represented man's desire to determine his own standards of what is right and wrong. Where the tree of life was represented God's revelation. And we are privileged to have that spiritual revelation. What constitutes the knowledge of God? He said that we must increase in the knowledge of God. Mention five different elements that we'll discuss briefly in the introduction of the knowledge of God. <clears throat> Number one, who and what is God? Again, it's a huge subject, uh, but we'll touch on the major points of it. Who and what is God? Number one, let's turn to John 4:24, which gives you a revelation of the character and the substance and reality of God. John 4:24. God is spirit. Who and what is God? He is spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. <clears throat> the Greek word hypostasis, some wanted to use as a mystical way of deciding what God was like, that he was distinct without being separate, was their definition. That refers to a common foundation of reality. But what he's saying here is that God is a foundation of reality. Is He's composed of spirit, the essential nature. God the Father and Jesus Christ 
are composed of the same substance. They are spirit. Turn to Hebrews, the seventh chapter. Hebrews 7. And they are also eternal, immortal. You're speaking of Melchizedek. Hebrews, the seventh chapter, starting with verse 3. Speaking of the king of righteousness, the king of Salem, the one who became Jesus Christ, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Uh, some of the commentaries said, well, he, they, they had just lost his genealogy. No, uh, he says he lives continually. So if he lives continually, he's immortal, he's eternal. He did not have beginning of days. So he's from everlasting to everlasting. I like that phrase. I won't turn there, but Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That's Psalm 90 in verse 2. Psalm 41, verse 13 says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. And 1 Timothy 6, verse 16 says, God who alone has immortality. Let's turn back to Exodus, the third chapter, Exodus 3. Thank you for your prayers for my throat. It seems to be getting a little better. Exodus 3 and verse 14. Remember Moses at the uh, mount was uh, before the burning bush. And he asked God, well, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And what, what, what should I say when the people ask? Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Exodus 2 and, uh, Exodus, sorry, Exodus 3 and verse 14. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. He's the one who was and is, and is to come. That phrase is used several times in the book of Revelation concerning even Christ. I am who I am. He said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am sent to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, then you shall say to the children of Israel, the eternal God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, and the God of God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. So God is immortal. He is eternal. God is spirit. He's eternal. And he is also a family. Ephesians 3, verse 14. Ephesians 3. We've uh, emphasized this in recent sermons, but it's such a wonderful 
truth about God's plan that the rest of the world does not know or rejects or denies. Ephesians 3 and verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you have a father and a son. That constitutes a family from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. God is the father of a family. And God in the beginning created the heavens and earth. And it's Elohim, the family, the two beings that are part of the God family. God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ. Of course, at the beginning, it was the Word in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He became flesh and dwelt among us tells us in John 1. So Christ was the Word and He became flesh and He was begotten by the Father. He's the only begotten of the Father. The only one begotten before His human birth. We have been begotten after our human birth. but He's the only begotten and begotten before His human birth. So the Father and Son constitute a family. My turn... I mentioned Romans 8 and verse 29 with respect to the special music, that we must be conformed to his image. But here we find another aspect of the God family, Romans 8 and verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So we are in the process of changing to be more like Christ, to be more like God the Father. We are conformed to the image, the character, the nature, the mind of Christ. But he is also the firstborn among many brethren. The uh, former association says, oh, well, that's just a title, just firstborn. No, he was the firstborn and is the firstborn from the dead tells us in Revelation, the first chapter. So he is the firstborn, and we've explained before how he was the firstborn. Romans 1 tells us that he was declared to be the Son of God with power by a resurrection from the dead. That's how he was born into the kingdom of God. And he is the firstborn of many brethren. Turn to Hebrews, the second chapter. Hebrews 2. So God is immortal, God is spirit, and God is a family. Hebrews 2 and verse 10. For it is fitting for him, speaking of Jesus, for whom are all things and by whom all things are all things, Notice this, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. What is God's purpose? He's bringing many sons into glory. The fact that God is a family is something that's been rejected. Our former association produced a booklet back in 1992 called God Is... dot dot dot. They had a full page, God has a family, because they were rejecting the fact 
and the reality that God is a family. And then the follow-up publication in 1993 even uh, eliminated that particular page. No, the father is a father, the son is a son, that constitutes a family. Mr. Weston writes in the booklet, John 3.16, and uh, how, uh, how many of you have actually read the first chapter of the booklet, John 3.16, Hidden Truths of the Golden Verse? Let me see your hands. Good. Well, I can't see very well, but it looks like about 80% of you. <clears throat> so I'll read the rest of the book, booklet if you haven't. He writes, uh, page 4, quote, The first place the term God is used in Scripture, Genesis 1.1, it comes from the Hebrew Elohim, a plural word. The plurality of God is affirmed in verse 26. Then God, Elohim, said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. The terms us and our indicate more than one member in the God family. But think, uh, but how can one reconcile humankind being made in the image and likeness of a Trinitarian God? Think about it. If God is a Trinity, with all that this means and implies, How could we human beings truthfully be said to have been made in his image and likeness? So we all know about the uh, how to counteract the idea of a trinity. The Bible does not teach the trinity. And if we look at Paul's epistles, and Paul knew God very intimately. He revealed some very fundamental doctrines of truth in the Bible. And in his epistles, he always addresses the epistles how? Grace and peace be unto you from the Trinity. No, from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. If the Apostle Paul knew that there was a Trinity, then he was blaspheming by omitting that supposed third person of the Trinity, which does not exist. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit that flows out from God. I'll comment on that a little later. But the Apostle Paul certainly would have known that there was a third person on there. I want to share with you briefly, um, and I hope you all have a copy of at least the Living Church of God official statement of fundamental beliefs. And on page uh, 2 we have the heading, Who and What is God? I want to take the time to read from this uh, publication. Who and what is God? The Father and Son com- comprise the Godhead. There is one God, 1 Corinthians 8.4, Deuteronomy 6.4. Scripture shows a God is a divine family which began with two, God the Father and the Word. Genesis 1.26, Ephesians 2.19, Ephesians 3.15, which we read, Hebrews 2, verses 10 and 11. Then it has a section on God is spirit and eternal. The Father is the supreme being in the Godhead. Jesus Christ said that he was sent to reveal the Father and acknowledge that his Father was greater than he. The Athanasian 
creed of the Trinity said that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are co-eternal and they are co-equal. But Jesus said, my Father is greater than I am. On page 5, the section on the Son. Jesus Christ is the Word, Greek Logos, through whom the Father created all things, John 1, 1 through verse 3. The only begotten Son of the Father and Savior of all mankind. I'm omitting some of the scriptural references here. He died for our sins and was resurrected that we might be saved from eternal death. He now sits at the Father's right hand and acts as our high priest, as a living head of the church. So this is very plain. This is all scriptural. It's true. The Holy Spirit. God is spirit. The Holy Spirit is the very essence, the mind, life, and power of God. It is not a being. The Spirit is inherent in the Father and the Son and emanates from them throughout the entire universe. Psalm 139, verse 7. It was through the Spirit that God created all things. Genesis 1, 1. And verse 2, Revelation 4, verse 11, is the power by which God, sorry, lost lost my place here. Um, It is the power by which Christ maintains the universe. And that is such a powerful revelation, Hebrews 1, 3, that Christ sustains all things, ta panta, the universe, by the word of his power. He is the sustainer of the universe. Back to uh, the writing here in the Statement of Beliefs. It is given to all who repent of their sins and are baptized, and is the power by which all believers must be overcomers. Romans 8, verse 37, King James Version Revelations 22, verses 26 and 27, that will lead to eternal life. So that is the wonderful truth of who and what God is. So the primary elements of what God is. He is spirit. He is immortal. He is family. So we've discussed the first major element of the knowledge of God. Who and what is God? Number two, the knowledge of God includes the knowledge of his nature and character. What is God's nature and what is his character? You all should be able to answer that pretty quickly. First John, the fourth chapter. First John 4 and verse 8. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. That's his nature. That's his character. Then verse 16. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. I hope all of us intimately and consciously, consciously, consciously aware 
of that love that God has unconditional love for each and every one of us. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Turn to Galatians, the fifth chapter. Well, God's divine nature is described there in 1 John 4, but it's also described by the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians, the fifth chapter. Galatians 5. And you know the fruits of the Spirit. I hope you pray that God is producing those fruits in your life. And not only do you reflect Christ and His characteristics, but you radiate the fruits of the Spirit. You radiate love, joy, peace. Galatians 5 and verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And we thank God for His characteristics and for His nature. And we must come become like God and have that very nature in our lives as well. John 3.16, you all know that by heart, I won't turn to it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's God's love expressed, demonstrated, and proved to us. James, the first chapter, if you'll turn there. James 1. What is God's nature? He is love, but He has also expressed that love in being the ultimate giver. He gave His own begotten Son. But He also gives every good gift to us. James 1, verse 17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Then verse 18, Of His own will begat He, or read the King James, Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of His creation. Yes, God is creating a family. And he has begotten us, as the King James has it, not brought forth as the new King James. And he's begotten us by the word of truth through his Holy Spirit. How else can we know the nature and the character of God? How many of you can recite Seven proofs. There's seven different, there are different lists, but how many of you can recite at least seven proofs proving the existence of God? Let me see your hand on here. Well, not too many people can uh, recite all seven proofs of God. Oh, well, brethren, you need to, your education has been sadly neglected. You really need to do something about that. And of course, uh, that's uh, also have that. Well, I had it here, but I don't. It's in the uh, booklet, the, the Real God, Proofs and Promises. So I uh, hope you uh, know that. I, I know that's one of the very basic things that uh, you need to prove. Of course, each of us has uh, 
an individual impression of what really convinces and convicts us of the reality of God. And he says, of course, to this man will I look to him who poor in spirit and uh, trembles at my word, Isaiah 66 and verse 2. And uh, I used to ask in my class, of course, in the Fundamentals of Theology, what proves to you personally that God exists? And, of course, the one student said, well, if God didn't exist, I wouldn't be alive today because I would be in prison or dead because of my lifestyle, but because God called me and gave, gave me forgiveness through his son's blood, then my life has changed, and I know God exists. And most of you will say, yes, I know God exists because he's answered my prayers. So what is it? Well, God is a creator. We already saw that in Romans, the first chapter, verse 20. He's the creator of heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is. Genesis 1.1. And also the fourth commandment in Exodus 20. That he rested the seventh day, but he created everything. in heaven and earth, and the sea, and all that in them is. All the creatures that are. And God is the lawgiver. Not only spiritual law, but natural law. All the elements of physics and chemistry and the cycle of life and the network of life and uh, around the world and the oceans and the air and the cycle of, of life. Uh, God created those in such precision. As I already mentioned in one of my sermons about the solar eclipse that we saw last year. Just precise. And God has put those laws in action and, and spiritual laws, which are so for, which actually reveal His nature and love. He's the creator of heaven and earth, the sea and all the men, and He is the creator of righteous, perfect, holy character. The seven proofs, God is a creator, lawgiver, life giver. Not only physical life, but spiritual life. He's begotten us by His Spirit that emanated from Him. So He's a life giver. And not, He is also the, the designer. He designed, you know, take a look, any, any, look at the human hand itself is an amazing design. You might take a look at uh, Tomorrow's World magazine. We have a series, most um, editions have the series by Mr. Wallace Smith, The Work of His Hands. And this particular issue, the current issue, the uh, July-August 2018 issue of Tomorrow's World has uh, The Work of His Hands titled Octopus, An Alien in Our Oceans? Question mark. So uh, you can read that article, octopus. What is the word octopus? Well, it means uh, eight feet. Uh, octopus, octo, eight, and pus, feet, yes, eight feet. So all the marvelous creation, God has designed that, and he has also, of course, sustained the universe. As I already mentioned, Hebrews 1, verse 3. As he also answered prayer, He's the designer and, of course, fulfilled prophecy. Those are seven. Now, the booklet that Dr. Douglas Winnale wrote 
includes also the way of life that works. That's uh, proof number seven. Let me just read to you from that booklet, if I have that ready. I'll, I'll take to do that later. But it's a way of life that works. So, number two in asking what and who is God is revealed through the proofs of God, and his character is love. He is compassionate. He is eternal and he's immortal. He's a creator and a lawgiver and a life giver, a sustainer, the designer, the one who fulfills prophecy, answers prayer, and gives us a life and a way of life that works. So the knowledge of God includes the knowledge of his nature and character. That's number two. Number three, the knowledge of God includes the knowledge of his purpose. What is God's purpose? We've already answered that question in part. Hebrews 2 and verse 10. In bringing many sons into glory, God has a purpose in his whole master plan of calling individuals to become his begotten children and through a lifetime grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ to be conformed to the image and character and mind and nature of Christ and eventually overcoming self-Satan in society to be born into his kingdom. The knowledge of God includes the knowledge of his purpose and he's bringing many sons to glory. We also saw that in James 1, 7, 8, verse 18, of his own will, he begat us with the word of truth. He is creating in us his perfect, righteous character. Return to Second uh, Peter, uh, the first chapter. Second Peter, the first chapter. Second Peter 1 and verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. Here again, we have the knowledge of God. That's the title of the sermon. The knowledge of God and introduction. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him, who has called us by glory and virtue. And we find out actually that the word knowledge here is epignosis, which means full, full knowledge of God. Epi-inclusive than, than gnosis. By which have given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, verse 4, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, what is God's purpose? Creating in Him, in us, His divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. As we brought out in the sermon on God's master plan, what is God's purpose in three words? God is reproducing Himself, four words. God is reproducing Himself. I mentioned in Dr. Meredith's writings and also and Mr. Herbert Armstrong's writings. 
So God is producing in us his perfect character where we, of course, have our part in that process. When was the last time you prayed? Psalm 51, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit or a steadfast spirit within me. That's why you're alive. And we have the knowledge of God, of His great purpose, that He's reproducing Himself. He's creating a family. And you and I are that family. And many thousands of others. And many other numerous of people throughout all the ages that God has called and put into their lives His very nature, His very character of love. So number three, the knowledge of God includes the knowledge of God's purpose. He's creating a loving and immortal family. He's creating holy, righteous character. And he's also establishing the kingdom of God on the earth. He will. That's his purpose. And that was the gospel that Jesus preached. And that's our mission to preach the good news of the coming kingdom of God. To establish the kingdom of God which can be called the family of God and the government of God. The kingdom of God is the government of God and it's the family of God. It's God's purpose to establish that on earth with the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Prince of peace, then all nations will know him and worship him. Another purpose of God is to end pain, suffering, and death. And that, of course, will ultimately come at the end of the God's plan. There will be no more pain, suffering, or death. We may come across that scripture uh, later on. So we've just seen God's purpose and his plan as a part of the very major element of the knowledge of God. Number four, the knowledge of God includes the knowledge of his master plan. So they somewhat overlap his purpose and his plan, but the plan shows how the purpose is going to be fulfilled. And we know that plan through his annual festivals and holy days. And those who have abandoned the observance of those festivals and holy days have forgotten and lost what they once knew about the knowledge of God. They have resisted the knowledge of God, rejected the knowledge of God, when they've abandoned the feast days and the weekly Sabbath. But we rehearse that plan. I did that in the sermon, of course, on God's master plan before time began, the sermon we gave a few weeks ago or some months ago. The Passover season, as we mentioned, is God's people made innocent, as our Bible study course, Lessons 13 through 18, bring out. Pentecost season is God's people made holy. We're made innocent. We're made holy. And the fall festivals picture the future when God's people enter into glory. When I turn to that scripture, we did mention it in that Sermon Second Timothy 1, verse 7, on God's master plan before time began. Second Timothy 1 and verse 7. Oh, 
For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Therefore, be not ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, the Apostle Paul writes, Timothy, nor of me as a prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us, saved us from our past sins, and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Oh, God has given us the knowledge of his master plan even before time began. I won't uh, repeat the uh, annual festivals and holy days. We, we've covered that in a recent sermon. But the knowledge of God, number four, includes the knowledge of his master plan. Number five, the knowledge of God includes living his way of life. Living his way of life. John fourteen six, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me except through to the Father except through me. Dr. Douglas Winnale's booklet on the real God, Proofs and Promises, as proof number seven, a way of life that works. I'll read from that section. Quote, In the New Testament, we are told that Jesus came to explain the law more fully for Christians, Matthew 5, 17. He explained how to live by the spirit of the law, not just the letter, Matthew 5, verses 21 through 28. Here again, it was God's intent that those who choose to follow his instructions would become lights or examples to the world, that God's way works. Jesus clearly stated that I have come that they might have life and that they have it more abundantly, John 10.10. He was definitely advocating a better way to live. The contrast between Jesus' teaching and the ways of this world was likened to the difference between night and day, John 3, verse 16 through 21. When his disciples began urging people to come out of this world and live according to the real teachings of Jesus, 2 Corinthians 6, verses 11 through 18, they were pelted with accusations that, quote, those who have turned the world upside down have come here too, end of quote. That's Acts 17, verses 5 through 6. And that's from page 25 in uh, Douglas Whale's booklet, of the real God, Proofs and Promises. And we know God's way of life is the way of give. Acts 23, 20, verses 35. More blessed to give than to receive. Or the Mapha translation, it's happier to give than to get. And you don't know that we are called to be the lights of the world and the salt of the earth. Turn to 1 John 2 and verse 3. 1 John 2 and verse 3. We already read uh, verse 4, or he that says he knows and thinks, says he knows him and does not keep his commandments a liar. But verse 3, I asked how many of you know the seven proofs of God's existence. It seemed to be very few. 
uh, knew those seven proofs. I know that that doesn't mean you don't know God, but when we first become acquainted with God, and some of our brethren who are, I know one of our ministers, was an atheist to begin with, and God called him, and he proved of God's existence. And he has personal reasons for knowing that God does exist. When we first come into the truth, we might believe that God exists. But then after a while, maybe after some answered prayers, we know God exists. Don't raise your hands. But how many of you can say, I know that I know God exists? If you can't say that, then you really need to draw closer to God and pray that you can know that because it tells us right here in verse 3 of 1 John 2. Now by this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. So if God is giving you His Spirit and He's writing on your hearts and minds the New Covenant, that is the spiritual applications of the Ten Commandments and the whole way of life, you know that you know Him because you see a change in your heart and your mind and you've seen the fruits in your own life. You've seen how God has dealt with you and helped you, healed you, answered your prayers, given you compassion, delivered you from trials and tests, or brought you through trials and tests. And you know that you know Him. And if you haven't got to that stage yet, you need to spend more time fasting, seeking God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Hereby we do know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. We know Matthew 19.17, I won't turn there, but you know, The young man said, what shall I do to enter eternal life? And he said, if you will enter to life, keep the commandments. The Ten Commandments reveal God's character. They show us how to love God and how to love our neighbors. I mentioned uh, Mr. Weston at the uh, Living Youth Camp. I saw him on, it was Thursday morning when he did the morning uh, Bible study presentation at the camp in Athens, Texas. And he gave a presentation titled, Unbreakable, Unshakable. He was urging the youth, encouraging the youth to stand up for biblical values in a world that is pressing them toward worldly ways. And one of the seven keys he gave in his unshakable, unbreakable message was, Live by a higher law than yourself. Live by a higher law than yourself. And, of course, the golden, the theme for the camp this year is the golden rule. Whatsoever you would others to do unto you, do you also unto them. That's uh, Matthew 7, verse 12. So the knowledge of God includes living his way of life. We've discussed five major keys to the knowledge of God as an introduction. Next, I want to cover a few special scriptures on the knowledge of God. We already read Colossians 1, verse 10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. 
That means bearing more of the fruits of God's Spirit in good works. Turn to Second Peter, the first chapter, Second Peter 1. We've already read it, but I want to emphasize again the particular words that are brought here. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. Second Peter 1, verse 2. In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as a divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through what? The knowledge of Him who has called us to glory and virtue. The Expositor's Bible Commentary mentions this. The first seven words of this verse are identical with 1 Peter 1, verse 2. But here the words through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord are added. As in other New Testament letters, the basic theme of the letter is quickly sounded. For 1 Peter, it is knowledge, epignosis, and epignosis is full knowledge. That also occurs in 2 Peter, verses 3, 8, and 2.20. The verb epignosco occurs twice in 2 Peter 2, verse 21. Gnosis, knowledge, in 2 Peter occurs in chapter 1, verse 5, and uh, verse 6, in chapter 3.18. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. Gnosko, know, as a verb, occurs in chapter 1, verse 20, and chapter 3, verse 3. This makes a total of 11 occurrences of these related words in this short letter. The knowledge of God is a central biblical theme. In 1 John, in the letter of 1 John, 42 occurrences of knowing, the word knowing, in its 105 verses. So in 1 John, he's emphasizing the word know or knowing. And as a part of an action step for this sermon, I would encourage all of you sometime this week to read through 1 John and read it slowly in terms of combating Gnosticism, false heresies, and learning and increasing in the true knowledge of God, the true gnosis of God. Forty-two occurrences of knowing occur in 105 verses of 1 John. They mention Titus 1.16. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. So the word epignosis states here, when emphasis is placed on the prepositional prefix, epi, the meaning of epignosis is Know exactly, completely, through and through. So God gives us that encouragement in First and Second Peter that we are to know Him thoroughly. I won't turn there, but we have the future knowledge of God. We already saw that all nations will know who God is in the future. But I'll just quote, Revelation, uh, Jeremiah 31, verse 34. 
No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. So the future knowledge of God is optimistic and glorious. We realize God will reveal himself to the whole world. The whole world will have to acknowledge that God is the creator, that he is the sovereign ruler of the universe, that he rules supreme. And we will have the opportunity, of course, to re-educate the world. And we need to put this knowledge into action, of course. So I'll give you four steps here and action steps in applying the knowledge of God. Turn to Isaiah 55 and verse 6. Isaiah 55 and verse 6 is something that you did once in your lifetime, but we should never cease to do it because we have a close relationship with God continually. Isaiah 55 verse 6, Seek the eternal while he be found. There's a time it tells us in Amos when there's going to be a famine of the word. The people are going north to south, east to west, and what is the word of the Lord? They won't be able to find it. Right now it's available through the internet, through the publications, through television, through other media. We are preaching that gospel to the world. But we must seek the eternal while and be found. Call on upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the eternal and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Second Peter 3.18. You can turn there. We already know that by heart. But when we're talking about the knowledge of God, we must grow in that knowledge. Second Peter 3. Verse 18, but grow in the grace and gnosis, yes, the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. So we must seek and grow. As an action step, number one, seek and grow. We can do that, of course, through the Bible study course, the new living education classes. We have special booklets on the very title of the knowledge of God. Is this the only day of salvation? Restoring original Christianity, your ultimate destiny, and John 3.16, hidden truths of the golden verse. We also grow and seek God by applying the seventh law of success. Law number seven is seek God's continual guidance. Two weeks ago, Mr. Wyatt himself gave a sermon, The Vital Overlooked Seventh Law, Lessons from Asa. We have the uh, reprint article, which you can send for if you don't have it, article number 140, Achieving Godly Success. And that gives you the seven laws of success. Then last week's sermon, Dr. Douglas Winnell gave The Importance of Truth. And he concluded with four noble truths. The first one was, know the true God. 
And he gave several biblical examples of individuals who finally came to know the true God, including ancient King Nebuchadnezzar. So step number one, action step, is seek and grow. Number two is to draw near to God. James 4 and verse 8. Draw near to God. James 4 and verse 8. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. I'm sure you'll admit that you feel distant from God at times. I I have. And I tell God, I'm drawing near to you. Please draw near to me. And I plead to Him. But this is a promise that God gives. Claim that promise. You have to do your part. The Charlotte Children's Bible class just, was that just last week? On July 7th, after reviewing James 4, verses 7 and 8, they were given a memory assignment to recite this passage and four tools God gives us to help them draw close to God. So even our children in Bible class studied this verse last week. And the four tools for drawing close to Him, prayer, Bible study, meditation, and fasting. So thank you, children, for applying those four tools to draw closer to God. Turn to Jeremiah 13. I better take a look at class. Okay, John, Jeremiah 13. I'm going to have to move a more, a little more quickly here. Uh, Jeremiah 13. Action step number two is draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. How close are you to God? God said He brought Israel very close to Him, and it gives this Analogy, Jeremiah 13 and verse 1. Thus says the Eternal, thus the Eternal said to me, Jeremiah writes, Go and get yourself a linen sash and put it around your waist, but do not put it in water. So I got a sash according to the word of the Eternal and put it around my waist. And, uh, let's see. And the word of the Eternal came to me, take the sash, and so forth. Well, my eye doesn't fall out. This Verse 11, For as the sash clings to the waist of a man, so I have caused the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, says the Eternal, that they may become my people for renown, for praise, and for glory, and they would not hear. So God says, how close are you to him? He said, the house of Israel was close as a belt around his waist. I think the other one, uh, the King James Version doesn't use the word belt. And it just seems like it's some close clothing in contact with your body. So how close are you to God? Do you cling to God? The King James Version says, for as a girdle cleaves to the loins of a man, so I have caused to cleave unto me the whole house of Israel. So are you cleaving and clinging to God? We had the brick weekend, Memorial Day weekend. Build relationships in Christ. 
uh, Mr. Weston's sermon on May 26, 2018 was build a relationship with Christ. So as you build that relationship, you will increase in the knowledge of God. John 17, verse 20. John 17, verse 20. How close are you to God? Jesus prayed this intimate prayer with his Father for us in our relationship with him and with the Father. John 17 and verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, but for also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. Action step number two, draw near to God. Action step number three, we already read John 4, verse 24. God is spirit and truth, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Number three, worship God in spirit and in truth. How do you do that? Well, God's spirit is to flow out from you in rivers of living water, so it tells us in John 7, 37. Verse 38, he that believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So ask God that those rivers of living water will flow out from you in worship and love towards him and towards our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we keep the two great commandments to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Action step number three, worship God. In spirit and in truth. Action number four. Pray for spiritual wisdom and ability to increase in the knowledge of God. Ephesians 1.17 That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Pray that you can have the wisdom and ability to increase in the knowledge of God. In this end time, the world is increasing exponentially in technical and materialistic knowledge and scientific knowledge. But our nations have rejected the spiritual knowledge of God. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, God's true knowledge, but he's revealed that to you and me, his spiritual children. By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. God commands us to know him, and we are part of his royal family. So as you increase in the true knowledge of God, you'll be growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. You will live the way of truth, the spiritual application of God's law of love, his way of grace, his way of truth. And you'll be growing in the very character of Christ. And you will fulfill the mission that God has given the church to preach the gospel to the world, to be a witness to the world, and to warn the nations of the tribulation to come. And we need to prepare the world, the church, and ourselves for the coming kingdom of God. So claim God's promise that he'll never leave you nor forsake you, as it says in Hebrews 13, 5. 
He said, I will be with you to the end of the age. Matthew 28 and verse 20. How well do you know God? Rejoice in God's love for you and all human beings on earth. And radiate your love towards God the Father and towards Christ and towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. And thank God that He's revealed His purpose, His nature, and His master plan to you and me. And now that God has revealed His way of life, we must live that way of life. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word of God. Thank God that through His Spirit, you can understand the deep things of God, as it tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 8 through 10. Thank God that you can have the true knowledge of God. So, brethren, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you.